The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Identity. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, his co-hosts, and his guests. Together, we will explore the many pathways to an aviation profession, the realities of what a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 41 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 12th of May, 2020, from the Aviator Sound Studios somewhere in Southern California. On this episode of Squawk Ident, I will discuss what flying the line has been like since our last episode. I was able to fly two trip sequences that included LAX, DCA, Charlotte, and back to LA. I'm happy to report that what I have witnessed are that the flights are starting to fill up. We even had a flight that went out at 75% capacity on the last leg of my last trip. As we navigate through the industry's reaction to the pandemic, we now are starting to see a slow return of the traveling public. I also had the opportunity this week to speak with an amazing aviator that connected with me to share his story in aviation for us. From EMT to director of a corporate flight operator, his journey is filled with adventure and heart. But before we dive into the show, I wanted to share a beautiful sound. I was sitting in my garden a few days ago having my morning coffee. I heard the familiar sounds of the birds and the neighborhood dogs barking. But then something caught my ear, a familiar sound overhead. Can you hear what I was hearing? Take a listen and tell me how wonderful it is. Could you hear it? The sounds of a passenger jet on approach into Ontario International Airport? For weeks, the contrails were few and far between. The sounds of decelerating turbines that once filled the skies overhead with regularity were scarce at best. And now, such a normally unnoticeable thing as the regularity of aircraft sounds over my neighborhood acts as a reminder that our industry will survive our careers will overcome, and our passion for aviation will not falter. So whether you're working from home in your respective fortresses of isolation, taking a break from binge-watching your favorite shows, or out there in our beautiful world doing your essential part, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Right after a brief word from our sponsors.
And ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Well, I would like to start off by taking a moment and recognizing all the frontline professionals out there. To everyone in North America and around the world that continues to keep calm and carry on, from all of us here at Squawk Ident Podcast to all of you, thank you for all that you do. To start off the show, I would just like to say thank you to Captain Roger, to Jerry, and to Rob D for participating in episode 40. We had so much fun talking about the latest industry news, recalling some of the highlights from our early days in aviation, and we even had the chance to talk about the dreaded crash pads that many airline pilots in the industry have to suffer through at some point or another. I did have some technical issues last week, getting the complete episode to post on the host site that I use, and it was because it was the longest show I had ever produced, clocking in at over two hours and 43 minutes. The time seemed to have flown by there while we were doing the interview, but I wanted to try to keep in as much of that audio as I possibly could. And I found through some challenging trial and error that the audio files had to be split up into smaller segments in order to be uploaded completely. So For those of you that uh, clicked on the show and only heard about four minutes of audio, I do apologize, but that all has been resolved and welcome to podcasting, ladies and gentlemen. This is what it's like sometimes. So while on a sit at the Charlotte Douglas Airport last week, I found a quiet corner. Okay, let's be real. It was a quiet terminal and it was all to myself and I was scrambling to get it all sorted out while on the airport Wi-Fi. So yeah, that was exciting. But today I wanted to start out with a segment that we like to call From From the the Flight Line. Well, after being off work for nearly 30 days, I had to shave off the isolation beard, which was fun to say the least. And I had to get ready to get into that mindset of packing for a trip and packing for work. It's something that I hadn't really thought much about in the past month or so. And I was very excited to get back to work. I I really enjoy flying and flying on the line. And and uh, so I happily started to get back into the swing of things. And it took me probably twice as long to pack for my trip as it normally would, because normally you know, I spend a few hours and I'm I'm good to go. And this time I was like, well, okay, what's What's changed? Uh, what do I have to be prepared for? I had to catch up on a lot of company emails so that I made sure that I was caught up with the new policies and procedures in relation to how we are going to operate from here on out with this COVID-19 or CCP virus uh, issue. And so it took me quite a while to get back into the whole swing of things and pack accordingly. Uh, my trips, both of them were the same. Uh, the last show was recorded on the 1st of May, and my first trip, I went out on the 3rd and flew one leg out to DCA, and which was exciting. And the captain had asked me, hey, do you want to take it out there? And I hadn't performed a landing in a long time, nor have I been into DCA in a while. And I was looking forward to potentially flying an approach procedure that is known as the runway visual for runway 19 into DCA. And there's a lot of uh, issues with that. Uh, That is, you have a huge restricted area just on the east bank of the Potomac, which is the White House and 
the National Mall, all that is restricted area. You cannot touch that airspace above it. So you have to follow a very particular uh, profile when you come in. You can't just shoot a visual approach into DCA. You have to follow the charted visual approach procedure. And it's always a little bit of a challenge to do so. You have to you know, keep in mind of wind drift and um, you know, being on altitude, on speed early, because if you're a little late uh, getting down, you're a little fast, it, it's not going to work out. So he offered me the chance to fly that leg, and I took it. So it was exciting to be back in the saddle. And uh, I've got to say, the, the weather was nice. The, the runway 19 river visual approach was an absolute blast to fly it again. I hadn't flown it in a while. And I got to admit, it was a really nice touchdown, a good greaser. And luckily, I was able to set the bar high for all the landings to come on that trip together. Uh, my captain was a real cool guy. We talked a lot about the changes to policies and procedures and what uh, we can expect here in the future. And so uh, we went to the overnight. And of course, this whole lockdown is really affecting even the overnight. Uh, you get in the hotel transportation, we get to the hotel and you know, there, you have to have the mask on in order to come into the building and they have uh, chairs and tables set in front of the lobby desk. So you can't get too close to the employee that's on the other side of the desk. Um, everything is kind of done with, you know, a glove and, and pardon that expression because it's not the white glove treatment. It's the latex glove treatment, which means, you know, everything we did, it was like, okay, sign here. Here's a clipboard. They step away. You then approach, grab the clipboard, fill it out. And then they, you know, have the keys there and there is no contact. And it's, it's just so sterile. And, and I mean that in a good way. So, you know, of course, you know, as soon as you check in, the only people who are really staying at the hotel are other air crew and they give you a, a handout and they say, okay, well, here's, here's your food options. And, you know, this is what you can do. And, and this is what delivers. And, and here's where you can order takeout. And so they gave us plenty of options, which was nice. And I did partake in going out, getting a nice brisk walk in and finding some dinner down the street at a local grocery store and uh, took it back to the hotel room and had my, my dinner in isolation while on the overnight. And this is how the entire trip went. Uh, I got a few days off, and then I got to fly the exact same trip again. And this time, uh, you know, I met a new captain for the new trip. And uh, he says, hey, uh, you want to fly it out? Or I said, well, I flew it out last week if you want to take it. He's like, oh, thanks. Uh, that's great, because I have not flown in a DCA in a long time, at least not as a captain. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, absolutely. I just did this last week. So, yeah. No problem, you know? And it was so nice that he actually asked me, uh, without indicating that he hadn't flown it in a while, say, hey, do you want to do it? Or you know, do you care? Do you mind? Um, and that really is a testament to the character of a lot of our pilots that, you know, they'll first ask the FO, hey, you want to fly it out or fly it back? And, and I already flew it the week before. So I was like, no, you go ahead. And, and he appreciated that. But he 
didn't even tell me that he didn't fly it in a while until after so that I wouldn't feel bad. So, I mean, it's the little things like this. If you pay attention, you notice these little selfless acts from our fellow crew members that really go a long way. Now, the new procedures that I had to follow with, you know, wearing the mask at all times while on duty um, in the cockpit for Legacy Airlines, it is optional. So, of course, one or both pilots don't have to wear it. Um, it, it, very, it becomes very difficult to listen and talk to ATC with the mask on, um, even with the microphone. I, I have my own headset, as most pilots do carry their own headsets. I've always carried my own for, for personal reasons of I just don't feel comfortable sharing a communal headset. I don't, didn't think it was very sanitary. And so I've always carried my own. And now, more than ever, everyone's pretty much wearing their own headset. And there are those that, that still wear the company-issued ones that are provided in the cockpit. But uh, even then, it's, it's kind of not really something that you want to do. So we both agreed that uh, wearing the mask in the cockpit was going to be optional. And, and right away, as soon as the door closed, we, we had to take the mask off. And we practiced social distancing to the best of our abilities. And I think that's true for most pilots flying the line right now, is uh, most are not wearing the mask in the cockpit. It just becomes so much more difficult to communicate with each other and with ATC. And the cockpit is not a place where you can say, what? Huh? Excuse me? Um, it's, just, it's just not safe. So, you know, we, we spoke a lot about uh, how... The industry is changing, how our lifestyles are changing, and the trip overall was actually quite good. And I gotta admit, it was absolutely wonderful to get back on the flight deck and have some kind of feeling of normality for me to get back out on the flight line and fly a couple trips after all of what's going on. Um, you know, I know a lot of my brothers and sisters uh, that are dealing with furloughs and, and potential layoffs. And, and, and I might be dealing with that too in the future. I, I don't know. But for now, I'm just so very grateful to be able to get out there. Uh, on this last trip, I you know, was, as I mentioned, able to, to get a good run in and have some conversations with some fellow pilots, and it really does make a huge difference. As a matter of fact, uh, I think one of the the highlights for me was on that very last leg, we flew Charlotte to Los Angeles, and we were at 139 souls on the aircraft out of 187, which is about 75% capacity. Now, the company has vowed not to go above 80% capacity uh, for the time being until all these phases of isolation and lockdown uh, have kind of faded away. And so most of the center seats were vacant unless there were uh, groups traveling together. Uh, none of the passengers really had a major issue that, that we heard about. So we were very grateful for that to see the number of passengers coming back. Now, I know the media and the public often criticize airlines for continuing to fly. However, it is important to point out that, you know, this transportation, the, the ability to get people from point A to point B, doctors, nurses, 
travelers, people visiting family, checking in on, on family uh, is important. And it is the lifeblood of the economy of this country. And so it just it really felt good to see uh, these numbers starting to creep back. Up next on Squawk Ident, I have the honor in speaking with an aviator whose journey can only be classified as an adventure filled with heart and character. He's an outdoorsman, an angler, a marksman, an equestrian, and a mountain biker. He has worked as an EMT, an AMP apprentice, a ramp lineman, an airline pilot, and he is currently a director of flight operations at Ascent. Joining us from his neighbor's basement sound studio in Boise, Idaho, Please help me in welcoming Captain Ryan Rosinski. Ryan, how the heck are you? I'm great, Tony. How are you? I, I'm, I'm doing, doing very well and very excited to have this opportunity to speak with you. Uh, you know, we met many years ago, back in I think it was 2014, something like that, where we flew together briefly uh, over at what we call as Sandpiper Regional. And, you know, your journey in aviation impressed me then and continues to impress me to this day. Uh, I just want to say thank you for sitting down with us and having this chat. So I've got to ask you, you know, how the heck are you doing with all of this pandemic, you know, economy and pandemic industry changing stuff that's going on. I mean, has it really affected you very much being in your current position as, you know, a director of flight operations for a, for a smaller company? It has. Yes. Um we're not doing any flying. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> everything's pretty much shut down just because um there is there are no meetings that are taking place. So, you know, I'd say 90% of our travel uh on the corporate jet is for business meetings and nobody's willing to meet face to face is kind of what I'm hearing. So, um, yeah, if nobody's willing to meet face to face, then there's no reason to go anywhere. Yeah. And, and yeah. do you, are you hearing any of the, um, you know, we have here in California, May 15th is supposed to be the day where <clears throat> we're going to start to slowly bring back a lot of, um, you know, restaurants and businesses and start to open up the state. Uh, is there any outlook for Idaho on reopening the state? Is it the same? I guess we're in what's called phase one, which I don't really know what that means, but uh, things are starting to open essential services. I think maybe you can get a haircut now. I'm not quite sure. A lot of, a lot of takeout food. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I don't know, our, our company is based in um, St. Louis, Missouri, and I don't know what's going on there because there was a lot of the... COVID-19, you know, cases out there in the Missouri area. So um, yeah. I'm not quite sure. I think they're taking things even more conservative than, than Idaho is. We're kind of isolated up here for the most part. Yeah. And, and so your journey in aviation really did begin kind of at a young age. And I remember talking to you a little bit about it. Um, growing up in the Bay Area, tell me what that was like. It was fun. It was a great spot to grow up. I grew up mountain biking on Mount Diablo, if you know where that yeah, is, right by yeah. Vallejo there. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much go out every day mountain biking on Mount Diablo. And I would uh, spend the weekends in the city, San Francisco, with my dad and um, kind of had the best of both worlds. It was pretty fun. Yeah. 
And yep. and so how did that kind of trans? Was that the age where you started considering aviation, or was it still not even on on a back burner? No, it was not even on. I had never even considered that. I didn't even want to go to college or get a formal education of any kind, to be honest. Um, I did not like school. I didn't excel well in school. Um, it wasn't my cup of tea. So uh, really starting to fly was uh, when I went down to the Salt Lake City Olympics in, what was that, 2000? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So that's where it all kind of started was down there. I was in Park City, drove down from Jackson Hole, Wyoming, where I was living and uh, stayed with some friends of a friend at a little little house in Park City, um, got some free tickets to the Olympics, and there was a map <laughs> on the wall in the kitchen. And I go, what's this map? And one of the guys that was living there, he goes, oh, the gal that rents the other room in the house, she's a flight instructor out at the local airport. Wow. And I kind of go, wait, she does what? <laughs> She teaches people how to fly. Yeah. And I go, she does that for work. Like that's her job. And the guys are like, yeah, yeah. And I was kind of dead end jobs. I was looking for something to do. I had tried my hand at an EMT, tried my hand at a couple other things and, uh, that clicked. And I went back home from the Olympics and kind of checked it out and saw what was involved with becoming a pilot. And I said, that's something I can do. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started the whole process of flying and getting the ratings, going to school, all that good stuff. Yeah. So I, I had moved away from the Bay Area. I was living in Wyoming. I drove the five hours down to Salt Lake and, uh, and then um, decided to, yeah, I guess decided to kind of go back to Lake Tahoe and start flying up there. It, I found a flight school in uh, Minden, Gardnerville, Nevada. Mm. And I had a friend living uh, in Lake Tahoe, South Lake, going to the community college there. And I thought, well, I'll join him, take some classes, get an AA degree, and learn how to fly on the side. So that's kind of where it all uh, started started to come together. Yeah. So you, you're like right out of high school, you know, you go and basically just pick up and move. That must have been a pretty courageous thing to do, especially at a young age. How did? <laughs> well, looking back on it, it must have been stupid, but... <laughs> So, and you, you ended up in, uh, in Tahoe in South Tahoe and that really poses a lot of its own challenges. I'd have to say, because, you know, most people, when they start out in their journeys in aviation, you know, some people do it at their home airport and whatnot and, and, and learn how to kind of work through those challenges. But here you are in a mountainous area dealing with all kinds of weather uh, mountain flying and you're just starting out that must have had its own set of challenges can you remember some of those early days in aviation and, and some of the challenges that that posed for you yeah a lot of wind coming off the uh the sierras because i started flying on the uh east side of the sierras in uh gardnerville minden tahoe nevada airport there and so a lot of wind and pretty hard to land an airplane with a lot of wind when you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, especially a you know, piston-powered light aircraft. Yeah. Yeah. So Every that was the bit. biggest yeah, that was the biggest challenge I remember from trying to solo and you know, learn all the ins and outs of how to fly an airplane was landing. Yeah. Yeah. And and do you remember your fi- first flight instructor? I do. Yeah. And what what were I the do. biggest uh, hurdle there or the biggest uh 
kind of challenge to, to kind of get over when you're walking in, you're brand new, you're like, I'm going to try this out because you, you were trying out quite a bit. You were working a lot of jobs. Uh, you know, you, you were telling me how that up, up in Tahoe, you were doing a lot of outdoor kind of jobs and, and working your way through that and getting the flight training in. Was that, were those jobs really the way you paid for that? And, um, no, I, I pretty much had the jobs to pay for food and, uh, gas and, you know, a place to live. And then, um, my dad helped me out with the flight instruction and paying for the license. So no loans here. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> which, which is pretty lucky. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you're very fortunate to have a, a father who saw your oh, passion yeah. in this and, and kind of went for it. Well, yes, yeah. absolutely. And yeah. so here you are, you're, you're walking in, you've got, you know, you're, you're a new student and your first kind of few flights with your brand new, you know, instructor, how did that go? It went well. He, he nice guy. He, uh, he, his, his parents owned the FBO where I would had, uh, found a job. Um, and, uh, he flew a, uh, a corporate jet. And so he was, he was a younger guy and him and I clicked pretty well. Like, uh, it was, it was pretty fun actually. I mean, that's all I can explain it is like flying's fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was having a blast. Um, it went well. There, there was some, uh, there were some challenges and then, uh, he ended up s stopping, uh, instructing. So I had to transition to, um, another, another instructor who was a lot older and a lot crustier than this guy was. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> but then again, you get to learn a lot too, from those old stories, right? You, you do. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. and all this time you were, this was when you were in Tahoe, you know, you, when we first flew together, you were telling me how, you know, you started out right out of high school learning to be an EMT and decided to kind of go this other route. Um, where was the EMT was over in Wyoming? Was that? I was living in Wyoming and, uh, I took a real intensive, like 35 day EMT course down in uh, Colorado mm -hmm. and, um, came back up and I got a, uh, kind of like a volunteer job. Uh, you got paid, but not a lot. And I was hoping it would turn into a full-time job where I would get paid to be an EMT mm -hmm. um, with uh, uh, Teton County Emergency Medical Services, EMS up in uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. So that was pretty fun. And uh, the people I met there were, were great. Um, a lot of good folks working there. Um, but, you know, I, I realized that unless you were going to become a firefighter or maybe take it to the next level. Um, that's all it was going to be is just kind of a, a part-time gig. Oh, I see. So still looking for something else to do at that point. So let's just recap a little bit. You, you, you go to high school in the Bay area, you graduate, you end up in Wyoming, you do an EMT course, you met some great people, and then you ended up going to the Olympics. Yeah. And that's like that. when you, that's when the seed was planted. You were there at the Olympics and you met someone there that was a flight instructor i never actually met her she she had her what i thought was a map at the time which being an aviator you know that it's was a chart a sectional chart and but i called it a map and i said what's this map up on the wall and the the roommate says well the gal who lives here uh she's a flight instructor i never met her she's uh -huh. the one who planted the bug i never met her i tried to track her down one time years ago and you know it was just 
years past and, uh, you know, too late, but I don't even know her name. Your career is planted by a seed because you saw a sectional chart pinned on somebody's wall when you were there visiting to, to go and watch the That, that the was Olympics. it. Yeah, I said, I can do this. It's not a desk job. I Like, I can do this. Well, you know, you're an outdoorsman, so I can totally see how you would not want to go for a career where you're trapped inside, you know, at a desk. Yeah, and yeah. trust me, I know, I know that one very well. Yeah. So, so here you are, you go, you end up in Tahoe, you start taking some flying lessons to work in odd jobs to pay for food and whatnot. And your progression in aviation wasn't a continuous, constant thing, was it? It was not. I'd probably be a, uh, a lot better off right now. <laughs> as far as <laughs> a lot goes, of us can it, say that. Yeah. <laughs> if, if I had just stayed one track, but, uh, no, I kind of jumped, I, I call it like it was an all a cart, uh, training environment. I, I was, I could go wherever I wanted to go and find a flight school and, and an instructor that I actually liked to work with. And, um, you know, wherever I was living and I could just chip away at the private chip away at the instrument chip away at this, uh, instructor CFI chip away at the multi-engine whatever it was you know mm -hmm. and uh so that's kind of how I went about it just a little bit here a little bit there different instructors different environments um it was fun but I thought there was like a method to the madness of of doing it that way I thought like you know I do my instrument down in uh out of Palo Alto San Carlos area where there's heavy you know, IFR and VFR traffic all over the place. So, mm -hmm. you know, you get that good experience. You can get in the clouds because there's not a lot of icing out there. Um, you know, I worked on my private in the mountains. I know you mentioned um, that you put flying aside a little bit in order to focus on education. So there you were uh, at the community college over there in South Tahoe. Do you remember those days? Was it, uh, was that really what kind of slowed down the, well, the let's, flight training? Let's be honest. The, the, the flight training at that time, I was super into it, but it kind of would take a back burner to going out and fly fishing in the oh. Eastern Sierras down by Bishop Bridgeport, <laughs> skipping yeah. school to go do that. Um, you know, late nights hanging out with friends, like, you know, it was oh, yeah. too much going on. And I, and I just wasn't serious about it enough to, you know, take three months and knock it out. It, it took yeah. a couple of years. And, and so you were also yeah. working as a lineman for a while, right? Yep. At two airports at the Minden airport and at the South Lake Tahoe airport. How, how are you juggling working yeah. two different airports? Uh, it was two different times. So I started off at the mm -hmm. airport in Nevada and, uh, got laid off there in the fall when business kind of slowed down for the season. And, um, I got a job up at the Lake Tahoe airport, South Lake Tahoe airport, uh, fueling, uh, ramper, you know, moving airplanes, um, pretty fun stuff for, you know, somebody who's 22 years old or whatever, <laughs> like, you know, doing, I, I'm like, this is, yeah. this is impressive here. <laughs> like I'm doing yeah. great. And, <laughs> what, being a lineman, a lot of pilots kind of do start out, you know, working the ramp, working the line, um, per se, especially when they're young. And, and I've heard some pretty amazing stories about doing that job and the kind of the pilots that you meet coming in, do you remember any tales from that time that really kind of stand out as, you know, something that happened or something you, you learned from or experienced with those other pilots that were coming in and flying in and you're fueling their airplanes? Yeah, I do. I remember there was the, the one that sticks out at in Lake Tahoe was, uh, a, uh, 
a guy he came in. I, I think it was a Mooney. It was low wing. So it must've been a Mooney or a Piper um, aircraft, you know, single engine piston. And uh, he took off out of uh, Lake Tahoe and he was going back uh, westbound over the Sierras and somebody forgot to put his fuel caps on. So he's going over the Sierras and fuels yeah. jettisoning out, you know, being siphoned out of his take tanks. And uh, I think he dead sticked it, you know, landed without power coming back into the air. And he made it back um, to the air. If I remember correctly, he, he made it back. Yeah. He was, you know, it's a slow climb out. You've got to get a lot of altitude uh, before you can head westbound over the Sierras. So um, I think one tank ran dry maybe is what it was. And uh, I, I don't remember the details, but he told me that story and that one definitely stuck. Check, check yes. your fuel caps. A procedure that we even do <laughs> yes. at, even at the airline level, you know, as you know, if you have that MEL where your single port refueling system is inoperative for whatever reason, a minimum equipment list allows you to go without something operating as long as it's on the list. And, and I can remember many times over at Sandpiper where that single port refueling system was MEL'd. And so they had to, the fuel trucks came usually if there was a really a good station that had the equipment, they would bring two fueling trucks, one in front of each wing, and they would fuel both over wing uh, fueling uh, of, the, of the tanks at the same time simultaneously so you wouldn't get a, a really big imbalance. And then after they were completed, they'd have to come and tell you, and then you'd have to go as the first officer usually or the captain. Um, yeah, you'd have to walk that, down that the me. aisle. Yes. <laughs> I, 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 yes. I remember that MEL. And so, and you always, you know, you always yes. knew a, a rookie FO because they would go out of the airplane and walk on the ramp and try to jump up and see. And then you're like, so did you check the fuel yeah. caps? Well, you can't really see them. I'm like, why don't you just walk down the aisle and look out the exit rows? <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, just go down like, like exactly. Twelve and go take a, a look. Triangle. They're like look out this window you know um yeah so yeah and, and i could totally picture that because i remember i don't i've never really flown in and out of south tahoe but being that i'm grew up in the bay area and and heard, got to hear stories from aviators that did fly in there i believe it was like a you would do a spiraling ascent um and that would make sense that you'd have one wing low and the fuel would kind of been siphoned out of that left tank or right tank whatever direction you're turning and then as you're climbing out you know you before you venture off to go on course, you always check, you know, everything, you know, you do your kind of little fuel gauge check, engine check, uh, radio check, all that stuff. Uh, and he, from what you're telling me, must have discovered that he was way low on fuel on one tank and oh, something was right. That's what it was. He discovered it before he actually went over the gut of the Sierras, you know, the, the, the highest yeah. points and, uh, Luckily, he was still within range of yeah. the airport there. So. And, and, you know, yeah. it, there's a reason we do these kind of little things, the checks, even to this day over at the main line. You know, we take off as soon as we're through 10, you know, some things happen. The air, aircraft speeds up and as pilot flying, pilot monitoring duties, either way, I always kind of run through all the pages in, in what we call the ECAM. So I check everything just because at that point you're through 10,000 feet you're picking up the speed to get the heck out of there. You could, if something's wrong, you could always turn back. So that's a great story. And, and the fact that you got to hear that as a, you know, early on in your career, you know, really does set kind of a tone of knowledge. And that's really one of the reasons I started this podcast is to, to kind of talk to aviators, hear their story, hear their journey, how they got to becoming pilots. What I like about the podcast, Tony, that you got going on is uh, it's simple. It's, it, 
it's not yes. too technical. <laughs> you, you know, it's simple. So, so anybody can sit in, listen to it, and hopefully pick some things up, whether it's nice being an experienced aviator and being able to hear all the stories and what you're talking about. But at the same time, it's like somebody who doesn't know anything about flying can sit in and understand what you're talking about. So that's, well, thank you. That's, that's, that's the way that, I want That's it, a good way know? to be. I, I want to be able so that yeah. I don't kind of pigeonhole the listeners to only be those that are in the industry and, and know exactly what I'm talking about. I want to be able to kind of reach out and, and, and hopefully inspire some young people to decide to go down this road and, and become a pilot, even with everything that's going on today, it's only temporary. It too shall pass, as Gandalf the Grey said, you know, uh, or was that shall not pass? Anyway, <laughs> so, uh, so you, here you were uh, working in, in Tahoe, flying in Tahoe, and you ended up going to Oregon. What kind of sparked that transition to go up north? I, when I was 16, I went in, uh, for a summer, I lived in Ashland, Oregon. And, um, my mom sent me up there to get rid of me, uh, <laughs> because I'd been hanging out in a, in a bike shop, uh, in, uh, in, uh, her town in Danville. And, uh, you know, I wanted to become a bike mechanic and she goes, she, she wouldn't talk to the owner. And when I was like 14 or 15 and she goes, if I send this kid to school to go, uh, become a bike mechanic. Will you hire him? <laughs> and Joe, he was a good guy, Joe. He, uh, he's like, yeah, whatever. I'll hire him. And, uh, so I went to a bicycle mechanic school up in Ashland, Oregon for a summer when I, I think I was 15 or I think I was 16. Yeah. And that was pretty fun too. Yeah. All by myself. Yeah. Going, living up there for the summer. That was, it was awesome. So you did a summer program to learn how to work on, on bikes. On, on, on bicycles. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and the, other people in the class, they, they were all, you know, in their probably twenties and thirties and they, some were doing second careers or, or changing careers. And, um, yeah, I mean, a great group of people, but all, all older than I was, which was fun because, you know, I was only 16 and these guys are 30. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we were all doing the same thing, which was cool. Yeah. And so how did so, that translate to you, you know, being, living and working in Tahoe oh, yeah. to go up there? Well, yeah, I, I knew that there was a uh, university up there. I liked the town at the time, um, or what I remembered of it. And uh, I applied to the school, the only school I applied to when I was getting ready to uh, finish at Lake Tahoe Community College. And sure enough, very quickly, I got an acceptance letter to go up there and finish uh, another two years of school. And I thought, you know, I'm already halfway done with uh with this because I just got my AA degree here in Lake Tahoe. I might as well do another two years and go up there and get a, a four-year degree because at that point I was kind of seeing the writing on the wall where, you know, uh, to be a professional avi aviator and get an airline job, you kind of needed to have that uh, four-year degree Yeah, to make it easier. You don't have to, but right. um, especially back it, then, it, it, you didn't really have to have it, but no, it opened up no, many more doors for you. That's right. Yeah. It, it just makes the, the whole process easier. Yeah. So, so I decided to go on and pursue that for another two and years. And you graduated with a bachelor's in psychology. A B, I call it a BS and BS. BSing. <laughs> so how did that work out for you? I mean, was it just like, okay, I got these classes and you know, this, is, this is what works out? I mean, because that's, to be honest with you, your, your journey is not much different than mine. I went to Solano it's not. Community College and, you know, okay. I minored in photography and, and had an AA in uh, 
social sciences, you know, big, big whoop. And then my counselor was like, well, what are your plans? Do you want to continue school? And I was like, yeah, sure. She's like, well, we got a transfer program at San Francisco State. You got a lot of photography <laughs> under your belt. You like cinema? And that's how I got a, a BA in cinema, is. which is like really cinema. useful for me, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm in aviation, Not you know, but... Not to jump around, did you live in the city? I did. Or did you? You did. I did. Where'd you live? I lived, actually, I found uh, the first semester there, I was on campus at San Francisco State, and that's where I met you know, my roommates and, and sparked some really good friendships there. And uh, a couple of my roommates and I decided uh, for our second year to rent a house two blocks away over on Holloway, which is uh, two blocks, uh, I believe, south of the campus, right at the main gate. And I was working. I was working at Costco in San Bruno and, and you know, paying for food and, and schooling as well. And I had a little bit of help, but mainly I was paying every semester for, for school. Uh, and that's how it all kind of got started. And then I ended up with this degree in film production. And I thought, man, I should move to L.A. and, and get a job. Meanwhile, Costco was saying, hey, you want to stay and we'll get you into entry level. That's a management. pretty good company, Costco, from what I hear. You know, sometimes I question whether <laughs> I made the right choice because I was, I was kind of on a fast track, and I, I ended up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, of all places, and and getting in these different management roles and and moving along quickly. And there I was in my twenties, making really good money for a twenty four year old, you know, and and that's when my now wife bought me a Discovery flight and. If you listen to episode one, you'll find out uh, that's how it all got started. Um, and I'm working my way backwards on the episodes. Are you? I'm starting with the most recent and going backwards. Well, that's good because that's not as embarrassing because my first few episodes as a brand new podcaster, I listen back now. I'm like, oh my God, I was so nervous. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you ended up in Oregon. You, you ended up graduating from Oregon and you were, you told me you were doing some flight training up there too as well. Is that right? Yeah, I was working, uh, still working on my private pilot license, the first license you get. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I had enough hours to get it. I, I, I think I took my uh, written test up there at uh, Erickson Air Crane. If you see those big orange air cranes that fly around, fight the fires and do the heavy lifting, oh, yeah. it's called Erickson. Yeah, I went into their factory and they, for whatever reason, had a, uh, a testing facility where you could take the written. So I took my written there. and. Um, Flew with a uh, a gal, found an instructor in Ashland and uh, Diana Thompson, and uh, you know started flying with her, and uh, still didn't get my license in in uh, Oregon. Um, mm. Had to had to actually uh, wait for summer break after the first year of going to school in Oregon, and I went out to uh, Driggs, Idaho, and found a flight school out by Jackson Hole in Driggs, Idaho, Teton Aviation, where I later ended up working. And went in there and I found an instructor and I said, I'm here for three months. I have to get this done. And that's when I ended up getting the private license. Yeah. And taking the check ride. And so were you still working over in uh, at the Teton Aviation Center? Were you still working while you were training or were you just dedicated to 100% training at that point? Well, I, I hadn't moved to, to, uh, over to Driggs yet to Idaho. Um, I was still uh, going to school. I had one year left in Oregon. So oh. I just went out there for the summer. I went fishing, camping, you know, hung out. But at the same time, 
I was every day I was going into the flight school to the airport there and uh, working on training uh, with um, an instructor there. Yeah. Dr. Patrick. Yeah. Yeah. So you ended up, you get your, you, that's it. Three months, signed, sealed, delivered. You got your PPL. Oh, yeah. it, it was, it was easy. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that was the timeline if I got that right. Yeah. And, and so you went back to Oregon, finished up. And then once you graduated, what was the next step for you? I think that was the timeline. After that, it was faster. The, as soon as I graduated, I didn't even go to the graduation ceremony. I just went straight down. Um, my dad was living, still is, in Burlingame. He's got a little condo there, which is about, I don't know, 10 minutes from SFO, San Francisco Airport. And uh, a lot of flight schools down there. And I ch- chose, uh, I think it was like West Valley Flying Club. And I picked out an instructor. And uh, I was like, hey, I got to get my instrument you know, ASAP. And that's all I'm here to do is get my instrument. I was pretty focused at that point. And what a wonderful place to get your instrument rating because, you know, I've heard over the years, so many people and they go, okay, where'd you get your instrument? You know, and like me, I ended up in Phoenix, Arizona, and I worked on all my ratings through an academy uh, that I went to out there over in North Deer Valley, the Pan Am Flight Academy. And so it was kind of like a bubble. Um, You were you know, you got some really quality training, but it was really, even the practical was not practical. It, you, how often do you get IFR, actual IFR in Phoenix? It rarely happens. I mean, how often do you get to take off in a Cessna with an instructor working on your instrument rating and actually have to file an IFR flight plan in actual IMC? It doesn't happen. So the fact that you were able to do it in the Bay Area where you could get those opportunities to to file an IFR flight plan and actually fly in IMC conditions with an instructor, that opportunity is, is I think, priceless. How many times do you recall having to actually get to do that? Or was it more of a yeah, lucky, was, good weather stuff kind of happening? No, it was probably, you probably got to do that, uh, actual, actually go into the clouds, IMC, um, I don't know, probably a dozen times throughout the the you know, the training process, which, which I think is a lot when some people never even, you know, see a cloud and they, and they still get the license. Yeah. So, um, and that's the biggest, I think that's the biggest problem with the training environment, especially for like the instrument is you're training to take a check ride and to get the license, but that's not real world flying. That's not how you can train me how to, and that, that's where I struggled. You can train me how to pass this check ride but then to release me into the instrument, the IFR system, and expect me to be able to, you know, go and fly like that, I, there, there was no way I was ready or comfortable for that. Right. So for somebody training, I think, and it, I, to the day, you know, I still think it's like that. That's the hardest thing is to transition from training environment to real world. Yeah. And, and often with some of the work that I did, uh, being a mentor with the union back in the old regional days, um, I can remember there was a saying that we, used to recite quite often, which was just because it's legal doesn't mean it's safe. And there were many times when, whether that be uh, in reference to rest, that you're getting rest requirements, uh, and you know some crew scheduler saying, well, you're legal to do it, so you got to do it. I was like, well, I might be legal, but I'm I really don't feel safe to do this because I've been going all day. And now you're trying to reassign me to go into bad weather. And it's like, this is how accidents happen. 
Uh, same scenario would then play out when it came down to weather requirements. So, you know, you put a relatively green new hire FO with a captain who had upgraded not too long ago, maybe 30 days prior. And now you're going into weather out of Chicago and they'd say, what, you know, you're legal to go. It's like, yeah, I'm legal to go. But with experience between both pilots, is it safe to go? So we, we always kind of hear this, you know, just because it's legal, it doesn't mean it's safe. And here you are kind of giving me the same phrase in relation to flight training. And once you get your rated, even as a private pilot, once you get your rating, that doesn't necessarily mean that you can do everything that a private pilot can do and you'd be safe at it. That just means you, it's like a brand new driver. You know, you get a brand new driver, they're a teenager, they're a driver. Hey, you got your license. DMV says you're good. Let's go. That doesn't mean they should automatically go and <laughs> get on a busy freeway and rush our traffic in bad weather and go driving in the snow. It just, no, it's, it's a license to learn, right? Like how many times have you heard that? This is your license to learn. That's it. And, and hopefully as aviators, we continue to learn every single day that we're behind the controls of, a, of an airplane. Uh, and, and I know until the day I retire, hopefully, you know, not for another 20 years uh, that I get to do this job, uh, if not longer. Uh, but hopefully I'll be learning every day as well. So thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. Um, you ended up getting a lot of your ratings and working your way to a CFI. Where is it that you got your CFI? So, yeah, so I went back um, a, a year and a half or whatever it was later, and I went back to uh, the Bay Area uh, just to do the CFI and train for another three months. Same instructor that I used for my instrument because he was a pretty sharp guy, John Audie. And uh, he guided me through the CFI, and then I went back out to Driggs, Idaho, where I was living at the time, and uh, or Jackson Hole, Wyoming, Driggs, Idaho, where I was living. and. Uh, I took the check ride out there with um, an examiner. Mm. Um, so I didn't actually take the check ride where I did all the CFI training, but it shouldn't matter at that point, right? Like you should be able to instruct anywhere. Yeah. I mean, if you have your endorsement and you're signed you, off, you're good to go. Yeah. You should be able to be comfortable. So I went out there, took the check ride, no problem. It was a two day check ride, the, the biggest check ride I've ever taken. Miserable. <laughs> the, the oral was eight hours. Oh my God. I wanted to curl up and cry. <laughs> two days. I mean, my, two days. mine ended up being two days for another reason. But uh, yeah, mine ended up being two days too. And I think I didn't think I had an eight hour. I'd had a four hour oral. And at the end of that oral, he was like, all right, I'll meet you at the airplane. Go start going to your free pre-flight. I'm like, I just spent four hours in here. And now you want me to go. Okay. Oh, it's a, mar it's a marathon, right? <gasps> those check, some of those check rides. Yeah. It's like, you just gotta keep on pushing, keep on trucking. That's it. So, yeah. so you made it, you got your CFI and tell me, how did you end up with the tailwheel endorsement? Um, I got the tailwheel endorsement after my private pilot with a, um, with an old barnstormer, uh, pilot, uh, up in, uh, Medford, Oregon. And, uh, he had a tailor craft. He was the only person in the whole area of Southern Oregon that I could find that uh would instruct uh you know tailwheel instruct and sign you off for uh tailwheel yeah and so i found bill warren and he was uh he had he'd, he'd done everything crop dusted he you know one of those good crusty guys he 
open up his trunk and pull out of pull out a bottle of homemade wine after the lesson and say, here, drink this. <laughs> you earned it. <laughs> you earned it. And, uh, oh, you know, he, he, he actually, he actually was some of the first people, uh, he, he had, I think what was called, uh, the flying circus. And he had, um, uh, he had an air show company and he'd have wing walkers on his bi-wing airplanes. And he had a yak aerobatic airplane and he, he'd travel around the country doing this. He'd land his airplane on a, on top of a truck that had a special pad on it that you could land on yeah. as the truck was rolling. Yeah. You've seen the pictures of for sure. Yeah. So he was one of those guys. And I mean, talk about real flying. Yeah. You don't need any instruments. Just feel the airplane. That was his <laughs> motto, you know? Okay. Yeah. I follow roads. <laughs> that mm-hmm. is, you know, to have that experience, to have an instructor like that and, and share their, their knowledge, their experience with you as a student, how fortunate can anyone be? That is an amazing, amazing story. No, you probably remember the same. Uh, you probably had an instructor or somebody along the way that's kind of been in that light for you. And, you know, it, it's, it's priceless. Yeah. I mean, you can't go through all the ratings like that, but, um, yeah, occasionally you get lucky. That, yeah. Yeah. The nuggets that you take from those guys are, uh, and girls are pretty, uh, the, the, that's good stuff. Yeah. And it doesn't end with yeah. flight instruction either. I mean, I can remember plenty of time here. I was, a you know, shiny new pilot at a regional flying a jet for the first time and meeting some of these captains of which some were crusty and, and, you know, kind of grumpy and not really happy to be there. Uh, and others were an absolute pleasure to fly with and extremely knowledgeable and so sharp. And you're like, wow, like yourself, like, yourself, oh, come on, Tony. please. <laughs> well, no, you're one of only, I think, uh, probably one of only four people I keep in touch with from Sandpiper. Yeah. 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 Only one of four. So the bribery uh, worked. Yeah. the bribery worked. <laughs> so you, you ended up, uh, you get your CFI and were you then instructing there out of Teton aviation center? I ultimately started instructing there. Yeah. Spike, uh, uh, who was the chief pilot at the flight school. I tried to take a job in, um, in, uh, California, like up by the grass Valley area, uh, flight instructing. I actually flew out there and interviewed, got the job, told him, told Spike, I was going to take the job. And he goes, no, you're not, you're coming and working for me here. And I'm like, uh, no, he goes, nope. He goes, show up tomorrow. You're starting. I'm like, Oh, okay. (laughs) So I had to, so I had to call the other people back and tell them I wasn't going to come. <laughs> oh man. Well, I'm sure yeah. he made it worth your while to stay. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he's great. Friends to the day still, you oh, know, and great. it was a great job, but yeah, it's like, no, you're not going to work there. You're coming to work here for me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, recently I had uh, a little bit of a celebratory episode, uh, episode 40 with some, some good friends and some co-hosts here at Squawk Ident. And we talked about your first flight you know, in an airplane, how that experience was like, and then your first time as a CFI with a student. Um, and I wanted to ask you as well, you know, do you remember your first student and how that went? Were you as nervous as they were probably? I was, I, I, I kind of remember it all. I'd have to, I think I remember who it was and, um, but I, I remember the flight and I remember being nervous. Absolutely. But I, I also remember taking off and uh, thinking how the tables have turned. Now I'm not paying for this and I'm getting paid. And that was a big game changer right there. Like, you know, after thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and 
hundreds of hours of flying and paying to do it. Now the tables have turned and I'm getting paid. So that that's what I remember out of it the most. And, and you know, that really is a, a pretty big turning point for most people is when, you know, you're sitting there and you're like, okay, now the shoe is on the other foot. And now I'm the one that has to give all of this instruction, you know, but we don't really think about it. Granted, it's not a lot of money. At least it wasn't back then. But to be able to sit there and go, man, I'm getting paid for this. The first thought in your mind is I'm really rich, you know, and <laughs> you're having a good time. So, so that was, you, you, you flight, you flight instructed as well. Or? Yeah, I did. Yeah, uh, I, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. I instructed for a little over a year. It's not a long time, but at, at that time in that's the enough. industry. Yeah. And that's, and that's another story. Um, but in that time in the industry, it was post 9-11, and it was far enough where, at least at the regional level, a lot of pilots were getting hired. And so a lot of flight instructors weren't flight instructors for very long, which was a good thing. I didn't instruct as long as I thought I was going to. I thought a couple of years was the way it was going to be. Um, now, I think it's a little different. Uh, instructors are getting paid a lot more. Not <laughs> getting paid ten bucks an hour to go flight instructing, uh, because they are a little bit higher in demand, uh, or at least they were. Uh, now we'll kind of see how it all turns out. As an instructor, you know, you did that for how long? I don't know, three, four years, I think, full time. So uh, roughly, it, it might have been three and a half. I don't yeah. know, but yeah, that's what I was yeah, expecting four years. at the time. That's yeah. what I expected, three or four years, um, and and to come out of it in sixteen or fifteen months, I think it was. Uh, was actually kind of a blessing. Um, I liked it at the time. Like I thought it was great. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, a lot of people don't like it. Yeah. I love it. I I did let all my CFI stuff go because you know, you have two years and you have to renew your CFI and you could either, I heard that on the last episode I listened to. Oh, did you? Yeah. You had to do it online or, you know, and I was just like, ah, it's just one more thing to do. I don't, if I don't have to do it, I'm not going to do it. So yeah, here I am now. Uh, I've been lucky. I've been very fortunate. Uh, to have this wonderful progression and have all these shoulders to stand on of all the aviators that came before me and helped me get through this and get to the level that I'm at. And I know that you're trying to still keep your feelers out there as every pilot does. You kind of got to be ready if something were to change or, you know, if that dream position ever shows up, like, yeah, you know, you got to be ready for it. Always have that log book updated. (laughs) Yep, always have that. So, so you ended up, instructing there for a few years and then you ended up kind of doing some flying on the side with some cargo uh, can you tell me a little bit about that yeah it was uh, a key lime air they had a uh, out of denver colorado they had a um a program in some you know piper navajos a twin engine piston and uh, they had a program where if you were close to the part 135 minimums close to the minimums where you could fly for their company that, um, they would kind of see you through the 50 or hundred hours you needed to get to those minimums. And then they would put you right into the left seat and give you your own airplane to fly cargo out to say Durango, Kansas, wherever, you know? Um, and so I kind of got hooked up with that program and, uh, it was not fun. No, I've heard stories. Uh, <laughs> it was dangerous and not fun. I'm not cut out for that. Yeah. <laughs> I did it I did it for two months and was lucky to get another job and I, I bailed quick. Was it at least in the summertime or did you have to bear the uh 
brute of winter operations? Well, I did both. It was in the fall. So you were, so you come out and there'd be snow or ice or frost on, you know, the 30 airplanes or whatever they had out on the ramp. And it was pretty much get your, you know, uh, ice scraper from your car and, uh, which yeah. was in the airplane and start scraping. They, they, you de ice was not a thing. They're not going to pay for that. <laughs> it's not in the no. budget. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not in the budget. So you go scrape until you're ready to ready to oh, go at, at, at 4 a.m., you know, yeah. or whatever time it was. It was dark. I've, I've heard stories from fellow aviators about uh, de-icing with a broom. and Oh, yeah. that's they, there was a broom on there. Yeah, you brush, it, brush off. it off. That's it. Yeah, so 2009, you ended up back in Teton. And this time... Yeah, I kind of I never left. I kind of did that on the side. Mm. when And when the off-season would happen, things would get slow. I kind of just always kept my foot in the door you've, there. you've had your kind of hand in multiple uh cookie jars here for for a long time and it's really worked out yeah. for you hasn't it it has yeah. yeah it's been been pretty well so tell me about the uh the astra g100 so the instructor patrick maloney who was uh signed me off for my private pilot license out there in uh driggs he uh i kept in touch with him uh after i got my license and uh, became friends with him when I moved to Teton Valley, Idaho, and started kind of working at the airport and hanging out there. Um, and he was still there. And so we became friends. And uh, I kind of had my sight set on working at his company for his owner and on this uh, G100, this Astra SPX airplane, real high performance uh, corporate jet, midsize corporate jet. And uh, you know, I knew it wasn't going to happen immediately, but I knew if I had put the time in um, that I could get there. And that's kind of what I started doing. You know, I started helping them out with, you know, just around the hangar and whatever they needed. I was there, you know, it's all because it was fun. Hanging out at airports is fun and helping somebody out is fun. And um, yeah, I kind of had my sights set on that. And I was down there doing the cargo flying and in in Denver. And he called and he goes, I've got an opening. Do you want it? Do you want it? And I said, I'm there. And I put my notice in at Key Lime that evening. And I was in flight safety, I think a week later, getting type rated on this jet. Yeah. And did you end up yeah. with, how did you end up with two type ratings there? You were telling me a little bit about two type ratings, same airplane. How did that work out? Yeah. I'm not exactly sure on the exact uh, process of this, but the, the Astra SPX is uh, an Israeli aircraft industry built airplane. And I guess Gulfstream out of Georgia, they bought the, the, the rights to this aircraft and they relabeled it uh, G100 um, under the Gulfstream uh, logo. But it's also, uh, if it it's also can be registered as a IAI 1125, an Israeli aircraft. So when you actually get the type rating, um, it comes up with two designated uh, type ratings for one check ride, which is kind of cool. Um, a two for, I don't know of any other two for it's a two for one. <laughs> I don't know of any other airplanes that you get that. I mean, other than like differences chaining, you know, like a seven five seven six. But th this is you know something. I guess that's yeah, I don't, I I'm, I'm not quite sure. Just, it's paperwork, really, because so if you're flying with one designation and you and then you hop over to the other airplane it has a different designation on it you have to have that in the paperwork so so that makes sense but yeah i mean 
that's pretty cool. It just looks good on the resume. Yeah, look, it's pretty cool. It's like, yeah, it's one it, one type ride, but I got two out of them. That's, that's yeah. Awesome. And if somebody doesn't know and they don't ask, then uh, you know, they think you got two type ratings. But most people ask, and yeah, they're like, oh, it's this, it's the same one that leads for it makes for a good story, you know, for sure. And yeah. and you, you've always kind of been the type to spread out and kind of have your hand in, like we said earlier, multiple cookie jars. How did that flying for the couple of years that you did over there, uh, flying the Astra, how did that transition into working for what we call Sandpiper Regional? Yeah, I think, you know, getting that first uh, jet job uh, pretty much, you know, sealed the deal for uh, getting hired at an airline, Sandpiper, um, and just having the experience and the, and the time that was required, uh, you know, and being able to fly a high performance jet, um, it's, you know, that I think set me apart from the other applicants that were trying to get a job, because I think this was around the backside, the tail side of the, the big economic downturn, you know, in 28, uh, 2008, 2009, 2010 mm -hmm. is, and that's when I started looking for a job at the end of 2000 and, uh, and 10. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think it was allowed me to get, get hired at Sandpiper, to be honest. I mean, I don't think I would have been hired without it. Yeah. Cause no, like there was no airlines being hired at that time. The only other airline that was hiring was, uh, Great Lakes. Ah, uh, yeah. Great mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the many, uh, you know, aliases. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, and I, ref and I got hired there for, well, I, I shouldn't say I got hired, but I got an interview there and I, I, I didn't go. I was like, I can't do it. <laughs> I can't do I, it. I too, I applied there as you know, yeah. at the time that's, you know, you apply everywhere. Right. And I applied there yeah. and, and I was able to get the sandpiper job within whatever, 48 hours, 72 hours, whatever it was. And about six months into that, that's quick. Job, it was very fast. You know, I go, that, go, that's go. fast. That's not my experience. <laughs> no, <laughs> as, hurry as, up and as, wait. As, as, <laughs> no, at sandpiper, it wasn't, I, I'll tell you that in a second. Yeah. No, well, the, yeah. uh, the, I got a phone call six months into it saying from Great Lakes saying, Hey, we'd like to bring you on. And, and we see that you're, you know, gainfully employed there, but, uh, you know, we'd like to offer you, you know, you're going to upgrade a lot faster here than you were or, or go over there. You know, you could pop potentially with, if you have enough hours, be hired on. And within a few months, we'll make you a, a captain. And uh, I was like, thank you, but no, thank you. <laughs> I wasn't that desperate yet. <laughs> yeah. But but I but I was ready to do it if I had to. Yeah. So so tell yeah. me what your you know, how did your application process go? Um, I don't know. It was the fall of twenty ten. Nobody was hiring at that time and uh or very few people I should say. And I applied to Sandpiper, waited two weeks, didn't hear anything back. And I'm scratching my head and I'm like you know, I think I'm pretty dialed in for a, you know, a brand new FO positions. You know, I'm like, how much experience do they want to call me? Like, yeah. I mean, I've got above the minimums and I'm, I feel like I'm experienced. So all I did was, um, I went online and I went onto their website and I just kind of started clicking around and I found an email for somebody in hiring HR. I don't remember what it was, um, but somebody's email was on the website and uh, I just emailed them and I'm like, Hey, 
uh, I think I apply. Well, I said I applied. I think I'm qualified for this position. I'd really like to to work for your airline, um, but I haven't heard anything back. I go, it's kind of like, what's up? Yeah. <laughs> and within 24 hours, I got a response and said, uh, "We just moved your resume or your application to the top of the pack. You'll be hearing from somebody tomorrow." Wow. And I and I got a call and. Like three days later, I was doing a interview down in uh, at the headquarters, and uh, you know, got the job out of a class, out of a interview pool of I don't know a dozen. I think maybe four or five of us got hired that day. That's great. So yeah, it was great. I almost didn't make it to the interview. What? <laughs> You'll like this one. So I'm. So they, you know, they set you up with the hotel. They tell you, they give you very direct, uh, exact instructions. Yeah. So I printed off the instructions, go here, get on the white van at 0630. It'll take you to the hiring headquarters, go check in, blah, 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 blah. So I go check in at the hotel that they set up, you know, at 0600, I'm down there waiting for the white van and all these pilots start funneling in at about 615 in the morning. And I'm looking around and I'm about as green as they come and I'm talking to them and they're all waiting for a van too. So the first van at like 620, 625, a white van pulls up and they all hop on the white van and they go, aren't you coming? And I go, uh, yeah, uh, I'm here for an interview with Sandpiper and they go, oh yeah, come on in. Uh. <laughs> so you ended up at the training center mainline training center and the interview is conducted down the street at the corporate headquarters offside at at corporate headquarters and so i go down there and uh boy i i ended up in the training department for our airline there and uh somebody in the training department took pity on me and she drove me in her personal car she goes honey let me just drive you and my car and get you to your interview. Wow. And she took me to, yeah. And she's still there to the day. And, uh, she took me and drove me over down the, down around town and down the block or whatever. And she took me to where the interview was. Yeah. And I rolled in like two minutes before I was supposed to be there on time. <laughs> yep, on time. Oh man. On time is on time. A, a half a heart attack there, but yeah, on time. <laughs> well, that's a great story. So you ended up there uh, at Sandpiper for a little over three years, and that's where we met. And um, yep. what was your, you know, at this point, you've had some training experiences through your previous employments and whatnot. How would you say the training experience was for a new hire at Sandpiper at that time, which was uh, 2011? Intense. Um, hard work. It's, it's, I think that was some of the toughest training that was probably out there. I couldn't see it being any tougher. Yeah. Um, and it had a reputation for being tough. And I think if you, I mean, you know that. And I think right around that time, like a year or two after I started, I think things were starting to taper off and get a little easier and a little more laid back. But it, mm -hmm. was, it was intense. It was a lot of work. Yeah. So you got hard. on before the AQP program. I, I was on. Um, about a year, year and a half before AQP, if I remember right. Yeah, yeah. Advanced, what's AQP? Advanced uh, Qualification Program. Qualifications. Yeah, yep. so everyone, there's a, 
it used to be where you sat in a classroom, you had to be there, and the FA mandated that you were there from the, the start of the class to the end of the class. You couldn't leave early. You couldn't, you know, it, it was timed. And you had to go over all the FA approved material for that day, day one, day two, and so on and so forth. And so you were there, you had to go through all this stuff, and you went back to the hotel and you would study out of a book, and you had to pretty much read the next day's lesson on whatever system or limitation or aircraft procedure or whatever profile. And you had to do all this. And the instructors that you got, I mean, everyone was like looking for the gouge. Oh, do you have the gouge on this guy? He's going to be my sim instructor. You know, do you, what kind of questions does he ask? You know, and everyone was really fighting to get that information. So they knew what to study because like the, Oh, like the PTS, Thank you, the, the, PTS. The, the, practical the practical test standards. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah. So you were always fighting to get the gouge on your instructor because it's kind of like having the PTS or the practical test standard in front of you. You kind of get an idea of what can be asked and what can't be asked. That way you're not sitting there overstudying a subject that you probably won't even see. So it was tough. It was tough. And and depending on the instructor you had, you know, you were going to have a good time or, or a really rough time. And then they went through this AQP program and the AQP program said, okay, here's what they're, the, the student or the applicant is going to study. It's all computer based on a, a tablet or EFB or computer or whatever. And that's, they have to study. They don't have to rebuild the aircraft. Okay, they just need to know what they need to know. And everyone gets asked these questions. So it went from being a very broad question bank to a very narrow field of questions. And I think the training was more focused on what you had to know and less focused on the, aha, I got you questions that those, that those Czech Airmen instructors loved asking in an oral. Um, and so when you started, that was before this AQP program the kindler, gentler training cycle. Um, and then soon after you got there, we had switched over to the AQP program and everyone kind of was on the same page and the instructors couldn't just come out and ask you some off-the-wall question just to say, well, let me tell you how it really is, you know? Um, and, and to this day, I think, you know, we've talked about it before in the show, the AQP program really does level the playing field for every applicant. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um... Yeah, it was definitely a step. Uh, you, you knew it was coming, I guess, is the is is what I got out of it. It was kind of a, it was laid out a little uh, clearer for you. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. I thought it was. I, I think I don't really remember about the AQP. Um, it's kind of like uh, ongoing continuing education, if I remember right. Yes. Whereas before that, it was more. Um, Check ride, check ride, check ride. Pass, pass, fail, fail. Whatever. Right. You know. Right. And and this is like more trained to proficiency and continuing education. Yes. And and it was always like every cycle would be a different scenario. It was more scenario based. That's right. Yeah. Kind of like you were talking about at the onset of the show. You know, to get your instrument rating and then never be in in the clouds. You know, and here it's like, well, just answer the questions. What are the limitations? What are the what are the rules? You know, what do you have to have? Uh, working on your aircraft before you can file an IFR flight plan and go fly IFR. Well, if you can spit that out, that's great. But now let's let's talk about a scenario. Uh, you go out to the airplane and this is what happens. What are you going to do? Can you bring in that knowledge? Uh, and if you've, you know, more of a scenario-based training is much more effective. 
than to memorize some acronym or you know some <laughs> some shortcut way of right. You know what's tomato of flames or whatever <laughs> whatever you had to have right. Um, yeah. So in that process, here you are flying. What were some of your first flights like? Do you remember? At Sandpiper. Yeah. Yeah, I remember the first. I remember my first flight with uh, you remember John? I think he's he's over at Mainline. He is now. at Mainline, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it was with him out of Chicago, and I remember. Uh, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know where <laughs> I was. I was so far behind and lost. And um, and I told him that I said I I I hope you got this because I I don't really know what's going on right now. <laughs> And he goes, we'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we take off. And I think, I think he had me take, I don't remember. I think he, maybe he had me take off, but he looks over as we're climbing out and he goes, be honest, how far behind the airplane are you right now? And I go, I'm hanging on with my fingernails to the rudder right now. <laughs> at least you weren't at the gate. <laughs> yeah, at least I wasn't at the gate. Yeah. John's a great guy. Um, wonderful yeah. guy, quite, quite a history too. Um, but yeah, I, I can remember those early days. And then as an instructor myself uh, there, and I always, I always made fun of the very first flight. I try to get people to come. Where did down. you do your first flight out of? Uh, you remember? For, as a, a pilot? With, with, with Sandpiper. With Sandpiper? No, with Sandpiper. Uh, yeah. yeah, Scott was my Czech Airman. Great guy. I still talk to Scott to this day. Wonderful, wonderful uh, gentleman. And it was out of LA. And, I, and at the time, we had to do two observation flights before your very first IOE hour. And so what they would do is they would put me on as an observer for the first two legs of the sequence. And then the actual FO that was flying that trip would then be displaced due to training. They'd get to go home with pay. And then the Czech airman, who was the captain for that trip, uh, then I would switch seats with the FO, and then I would then be the FO for the remainder of that trip. And that's how your first sequence on IOE would go. Um, and I can remember, <laughs> we uh, usually, you know, he goes, all right, well, why don't you go do a walk around with the FO, and then we, you and I will do one together later, because you had to do at least one with the, with the Czech Airman. And so I'm doing the walk around with the FO, and, and she was telling me, oh, well, if this latch is not, you know, if this is a thing that's a grounding item, and if this is a... And so, and then in the airplane, like the FO thought she was the Czech airman. So she's like turning her head, looking at me going, oh yeah. And by the way, and this and that, and this, and that. and then she leaves and she, a senior FO at that. And she leaves and then we go take a break, you know, go grab a cup of coffee and we come back and he's like, all right, everything she told you, <laughs> forget it. It's all wrong. It. He goes, you know, you just, you observe, you kind of see the flow of how things work, how the FO does the walk around, how. You know, you have to read the checklist and the flow and because it's not a, a read and do. They were flows, right? Um, and once you kind of see that happening in real life, in real time, now you kind of know what's expected of you. And then when you sit in that seat on that third leg, now you're just kind of mimicking going through that process. But like you, I too was hanging on by the rudder, especially after the first couple legs. But, you know, Scott was... The kind of Czech airman that was so laid back and he would just say, you know what, don't worry, you're going to get it. That's why we do this. This is what IOE is supposed to be. You're supposed to be hanging on by the rudder. Um, but by day four, I guarantee you, you're going to feel a lot better. And he goes, and then 
You're going to get one more trip of IOE out of this because we usually do two sequences and you're going to get your time and, and you're going to be out on the flight line. And so my second trip on IOE was out of Chicago, which was where... If I remember right, it was great being on IOE as a new hire because you're not on reserve. You actually got a schedule. They give you a schedule. So the longer you could stay on IOE for just milking it out, not like... Right. <laughs> deficiency in skills. Yeah. <laughs> The longer you were on IOE, the better because you didn't uh, have to deal with reserve and have to you didn't have to go on reserve. And, you had a schedule. Right. Yeah, it was just it was. I I even think you got paid a little more. It was better yeah, because you were still under the training uh, hours right. and training. Yeah, yeah. Training I don't remember the details, but it was good to be on IOE. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, that was my first experience, and then my first experience as a Czech Airman, I went back all those years later and remembered how I was treated by my first Czech Airman, by Scott. And I kind of really modeled the way I want to do things uh, it, for that as that role, a lot of the way he was with me all those years earlier. Um, so his professionalism and his training technique really was something that I kind of held on to. Um, a funny story there is when I came over to Mainline a couple years ago, uh, Scott would like you and I do, where we message each other periodically, see how we're doing, you know, just kind of see our lives progressing on Instagram or what have you. And I do the same with Scott and, and he's followed me. And he was, while I was still over at Sandpiper, he would text me going, when are you coming over, man? You gotta come. I'm like, you know, you did my training. You know, when I was hired, you know, my seniority, you shouldn't be asking me these questions. So he says, well, finally I got the job. I, I got to go. I went to training. I was in Indoc. He goes, ah, see, you're in Indoc. You know, that's great. He goes like, listen, you're going to have to do an observation flight for international qualifications. I want you to do that flight with me. He goes, I'm going to Hawaii all month. He goes, I'm going to give you my schedule. You pick out when they're going to get you to do your international observation, go in there and give them my flight numbers. And then you could be in the jump seat when we're flying to Hawaii and you can observe how you do this international operation over to Hawaii and we can fly together again. And I was like, great. And so I got the chance to do that. So fun. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, it, the fact that I got to observe one of really my first Czech airmen at a, at a airline. And I'd like to say a friend and a mentor. And then we get to Hawaii and here's, <laughs> here's a great story too. And I, I still have the photo somewhere. We get to Hawaii, you know, we go, we get to spend the evening together. We all go out with the whole crew. We go have dinner and drinks and whatnot. And the next day it was a red eye coming back. And so we get to the airport and Scott, you know, I was in uniform because I'm an observer and I was in uniform. And, and Scott says to the captain, hey, it's cool if I take uh, Tony out and, and do the walk around with me and I'll give him some pointers so that, you know, he's like, yeah, sure. He's like, you got it. You got an employee badge. It's good to go. So I went out and I, I look at the tire and I, and the nose gear tire and I go, Scott, does that look kind of low to you? And he goes, oh, but this is the ETOPS airplane. They, the maintenance has already come out. They've done their checks. I'm sure it's just because it's heavy because we we're full of passengers. We're full on fuel, like at 190 something thousand pounds. I mean, this airplane's weighted heavy. I'm sure that it's just Loaded the weight. Up. You know, it's just the weight. As long as yeah. there's uh, chrome on the, on the shock, on the nose gear, you're good to go. I was like, okay, all right. So we go do the walk around. We come in. I'm sitting there. We're all got our seatbelts on. We're getting ready to close the door. I see this mechanic coming, running over on the ramp and grabs the headset from the, the lineman because they're getting ready to push us back. And he puts the headset on. He goes, Captain, this is your uh, so-and-so for maintenance. He's like, 
Uh, we're gonna have to uh, we're gonna have to deplane the aircraft. And uh, looks like you have a flat tire. <laughs> Scott turns around, looks at me like, "What?" <laughs> 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 it looked low to me. <laughs> and so we deplane, and of course now you have to get 180 plus people off the back of the airplane, and all the crews off, and it's like midnight hours <laughs> well it was supposed to be like they were hurrying because they were trying to get us back on you know at least out of their hair because they can go home after we left we were the last flight of the night and the maintenance guy comes and grabs the crew we're standing there at the gate and he goes i need all you guys on the aircraft I'm like what's going on they're like we can't get the jack underneath the strut it's too low so we need everybody to go in the airplane and sit in the tail section in the galley in the back and hopefully with 20 or so employees back there, we can get the nose of the aircraft to lift just enough to where we can get the jack under it so that we can take that nose gear tire off and replace it. Oh my God. <laughs> because we have to replace it. And so it's hot, it's humid, it just rained. It's like 1230 in the morning. And I got this great momentous uh, photograph of 20 employees from all the different rampers, all the different airlines there at the airport that night uh, and the crew and the flight attendants and everybody. And we're all in the back of the airplane, just a, a COVID recipe because <laughs> we're all there squeezed together, uh, sweating and just laughing. And, and we have a great photo of that experience. That's so awesome. here I am, my very first experience flying at the regional at Sandpiper was with Scott. And then my first experience doing this international qual, sitting in the back of an airplane, <laughs> sweating, <laughs> trying to get the nose to come up just slightly enough to get that jack underneath. Uh, I told you it was low. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't miss a thing, buddy. <laughs> so yeah, great, great experiences, great opportunities uh, and great memories for sure. You were there about three years and you decided to get your feet wet with a program that, that Alpha had put together. And you decided to become a critical incident response pilot. What can you tell me about that program and how did you decide to get into that? Yeah, uh, my friend Wendy was part of the program. You probably know Wendy. Wendy, she was LA based. I remember. Yep, still friends with her. I still talk to her. Um, she was part of that program and see, she was the one that suggested I get involved with it. And it seemed like a good program. It was basically uh, pilots helping pilots. Um, if an emergency, something abnormal, something stressful uh, came up, um, we could reach out to those uh, crew members that were involved in the uh, situation and offer our assistance or help. Or if something really major took place, say a um, an airplane crashed or somebody was hurt on a flight or whatever, um, then things would get a little more uh, involved and uh, structured. But it's all about uh, kind of peer-to-peer -peer, um, stress relief, I guess, is the most simplest way to put it, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I've actually yeah. uh, dealt with uh, the critical response team members a few times after incidences that have happened over at uh, Sandpiper. It's pretty, it's pretty, it's more common than you think. Yeah. And you're like, who's this, who's this person calling me? And you let it go to voicemail. And right. they usually, you know, half the time uh, a crew member would call you back and the other half uh, you may never hear from somebody, but um, yeah, I, I'd say the gist of it uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, the gist of it was uh, 
the, the bottom line, the foundation of it all was um, you don't want anybody who, any pilot who has gone through all this time, money, sweat, tears, all that stuff uh, to get where they are, to give up flying, give up their career, give up their livelihood because something um, has happened either uh, through uh, an unfortunate event uh, while they're working or whatever it is, um, they want the other pilots to be there to help and, uh, and, and kind of get back in the, in mentally in the, in the game. Yeah. And it's a crucial yeah. resource to have and a wonderful resource to have. And, you know, I, I had a conversation not too long ago with uh, a wonderful pilot uh, from episode 39, uh, Owen Cotto, and uh, he's actually was a director in HIMS program, another great program um, dealing with pilots that sometimes get into, you know, alcohol and drug issues and how to help them out so that they can continue to fly. And, uh, and not just that, but, but many other factors, uh, human factors that are involved in aviation. You know, we're supposed to be these pillars of, of confidence and security and nothing, you know, pilots, they don't get nervous. They don't get nervous under pressure. And how many times have you heard the, the uh, saying that, oh yeah, they, they did this research to see how stressed they can get these pilots while in the simulator and, and throw emergencies at them. And they, they couldn't get the pilots to, to get their heart rate high enough to be qualified in this test that they were doing. Um, and I just, that's great to hear. But that just, that's not true because we're human, we're people, and, and we absolutely stress out and, and need that help. And so, yeah, that uh, critical response and critical incident training uh, was probably a wonderful experience to go through for you. And I would venture to say very helpful for your career in the future because that's a great thing to have on a resume as well. It's a good thing to have on a resume. Uh, the corporate side of aviation, the uh, executive corporate side, whatever you want to call it, uh, it's lacking a lot of the, it's lacking a lot of the uh, tools and resources that you as a 121, as an air carrier, that uh, you know, operator, you guys have a lot of resources to you in corporate. You're kind of, you're pretty isolated. You don't have all those resources and you got to rely on uh, pretty much your friends or people in your flight department or uh, other flight departments to bounce ideas, to bounce stressful situations off of to, to rely on them to, yeah. uh, to kind of figure all these things out that, that we have, that you guys have, uh, already set up in place to, to handle. Yeah. But, yeah. Yep. And, and that's great. And that really, uh, segues us into the next portion of your journey, your most current, most, uh, recent experience as a director of flight operations at Ascent. Uh, you know, operating a CJ3 and not flying right now, but you know, as a an operator or a corporate division, and as a director of flight operations, that knowledge and experience and training, I'm sure, has come in very valuable for you. What can you tell me about how you ended up there at Ascent? Yeah, it's a uh, kind of an interesting story. Uh, I don't know. Years ago, I had a, a student, a local student. Uh, in the Teton Valley, and he was working on his private uh, pilot license, but he was a student who bought his own new airplane uh, to get his license in. He didn't want to fly junk that everybody else was flying, so he bought his own airplane, which was pretty cool. Uh, 
a Aviat Husky uh, aircraft, uh, similar to a Super Cub. So yeah. this, yeah, big uh, Tundra tires, tail dragger. Uh, the seating was what's called tandem. So one uh, pilot in front and uh, one pilot or passenger in back. And uh, I taught him how to fly in this airplane. And uh, he ended up getting his pilot's license. Hadn't talked to him in years, but we still have mutual friends. And I heard he was buying what was called a, uh, a Pilatus, a PC-12, a, a turboprop airplane. Uh, pretty lightweight for corporate flying, but still, you know, uh, you know, four and a half million dollar, five million dollar piece of equipment. And uh, I reached out to him because I was excited. I thought he was going to fly it himself. But uh, turned out he was looking uh, for a pilot. And uh, I kind of went through the buying process and the purchasing and what's all involved with owning an airplane like that. Um, and uh, we kind of just worked it out. And uh, he ended up pulling me from the airline uh, environment to come fly corporate which was uh, a big step because I was, I was in line with a lot of other uh, people. I was swimming with the fish, you know, in, in the school to, yeah. to, I was in the funnel, let's say, you know, I mean, hard to, hard to break away at that point, honestly. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Yeah. Because uh, you, you just get almost brainwashed into this is, this is the track. Yeah. Well, you get comfortable. I think, you know, you, you show up and everything's done for you and all you got to do is, you know, gear up. Let's go. Well, yeah. And the other part of it is, is, um, and you've talked about this in a couple of your other shows, but, uh, you know, it's all based on seniority, right? right? So the second you jump ship or you go do something else, or let's say you need to take a break, you've just lost all the years of seniority that you put in. You've lost your spot in line and you start off at the bottom of the pack if you ever want to come back. Yeah. And that's, that's a scary thing too. Yeah. And if you, yeah. if someone once gave me this advice and I thought it was so good and I just want it, you reminded me, I want to mention it. So if you find yourself wanting to try something different and you're established at an airline or regional or what have you, and you have a job opportunity that you think is too good to pass up, my recommendation to any pilot that finds themselves in that scenario is to talk to the chief pilot. Find out if you can get a long-term leave of absence for whatever reason that you guys can figure out. Some, you know, some airlines will give you a long-term leave of absence for minuscule reasons that you can easily, you know, work out. Others are like, no, we're, you know, we, we're, we need staffing. We can't give you not even a short-term leave of absence. But if you can get a that's long- the, That's the answer I got, Tony. Yeah. I remember we talked about it because I think you and I flew together right before you left and you were, and I was like, why are you leaving? You know, you're going to, I think, I, no, I think I saw you in the hallway right before I left as I was walking out and I, yeah. And I was like, Hey, this is what I'm doing. Like, yeah. Keep in touch. Yeah. And, and so you left at a time when Sam Piper was hiring left and right. So there was no way they were going to give anyone a leave of absence. Now during this crisis, that's currently you know, involving every aspect of, of human life on this planet, getting a leave of absence, you know, they're giving them away, you know, and now they're doing these voluntary leave of absence, even at mainline, uh, six month, three month, one month. And for those that want to stay home for six months and get paid a reduced amount, but you get paid and to go try something else. Now's a good time to do that. 
And then if that works out, then at the end of the leave of absence, okay, you got to come back. It's like, well, actually, I found something better. So you have that safety net, and you're not going to lose your seniority when you come back. And that's a lot of thing that I've seen happen in the past, in years past, where pilots will leave, and they'll just go, well, I, I want to leave of absence, if, if they think of doing it like you did, which is great. And if you're denied or you just leave because you're like, okay, I'm, this isn't the next step. I'm going to go. I'm, not, I'm never going to come back here. And then that doesn't work out. And they could have done the leave of absence thing if it was an opportunity to do so. Then they come back. And like you said, they start, if they get hired again, if they start over day one in terms of seniority, all that previous time that they spent with that company is for naught because you start again with a new hire date even though you can retain the same employee number and you, that longevity might count. Like if you're there for three years and leave for two and come back, okay, well you have three years with the company. That's great for retirement or travel privilege purposes, but it, it didn't count in terms of your pilot seniority. And therefore you start again from the bottom. And I've had a few people that were coming through as new hire and getting training. Like, Oh yeah, I used to work here. Oh, I mean that IOE you can imagine was, walk in the park because they already knew the aircraft they already knew the, the company the operations the flight manual part one information so but i felt bad for them because they're starting again maybe they were a captain and they left to go do something and here they are a couple of years later coming back as well I, re I remember that story with uh somebody out of L lax and uh, you probably know the, the person and he was like a 12 or 14 year captain and he quit went to do something else, then came back, uh, started all over again. And he had the best attitude ever. He's like, yeah, it's just what it, it yeah. is, what it is. Well, if but, you don't have the best attitude, you're not going to make it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Cause you know, now your FOs that you were with, that you were given a hard time are now you're a captain. Yeah. So yeah, you, if you don't have a good attitude then, and now you're coming back. So you never know. I always tell people, you never know which bridge you're going to burn. Don't burn them. <laughs> <laughs> don't burn your bridges that, that's a long uh that's a long road to go travel on though to get back to yes. 12 14 year status yeah. yeah so this part of the show what i'd really like to do is ask you a couple questions to really kind of dive into some of your thoughts on aviation and on your experiences throughout your journey and what i'd like you to to think about for just a moment and let us know is what has probably, at least in your mind, been the biggest significant driving factor in your pursuit for aviation? Oh, that's a big question. Um, hmm. Biggest driving factor. Probably just getting to a, the most professional level of doing this as a job that I can and always just continually striving for the next level of training. Um, I know that kind of sounds canned, but uh, I think going to Sandpiper uh, took everything to another level yeah. from the corporate level. And uh, as we know, there's always another level to attain and, and something more to learn. And I just think continually learning uh, new aircraft, that's kind of what keeps me going. And um, does that answer the question? Yeah. You're, you're, it, it doesn't sound canned at all. I, th I think it, uh, yeah. it, it, there's a, that's a lot of truth to that statement is that you're, you're constantly trying to get to that next step in a professional way and make the best and career the, choice. Yeah. And then on the backside of that, it's flying new and bigger equipment. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's always, uh, it's, it's fun to fly new equipment. It's fun to fly something bigger. It's fun, uh, to do something new. So that's kind of 
uh, how you go about attaining that is learning a new airplane, learning um, a new way to operate, learning some new uh, tips in, in the training program. I mean, um, I think it kind of all goes hand in hand. Yeah. And if anyone were to ask you, you know, what have been some of the biggest challenges in aviation for you to kind of get over in your journey to become a professional pilot, what challenges would you say were the most difficult? Oh, the most difficult. Uh, well, we can go in the line and just line them up. Uh, instrument training was pretty tough because that's a whole nother, uh, way of learning to fly just off of instruments. Um, on that note, I think, uh, even to this day, taking check rides is stressful and tough because, uh, on a check ride, you've really got to, uh, it's like you're in a play, right? It's like you're in a theater in a play and you have to know how to play your part. And, and, um, it's not just going out and flying. You have to know how to act and respond to what the examiner wants to see. So you have to kind of play the role and that's not natural. Uh, and that's not how we fly. So that's probably continually the biggest hurdle is just those check rides and, and having to pretend in those check rides yeah. about what you're, what you're doing. Yeah. Cooperate and graduate. We used to always say, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm very good at that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, many professional aviators have learned firsthand how very difficult it can be to juggle the conflicting demands between their personal and professional lives. And, you know, you've got a beautiful family. You're an outdoorsman. You spend a lot of time with your kids and with your wife outdoors, going on these adventures that I just so much enjoy seeing on your social media pages. Um, so what is the secret to balancing the demands of a flight schedule and family life? Yeah, that's, it's tough. Um, as you know, as we all know, it's tough. Uh, transitioning from work mode and, you know, go, go, go. Everything's got to be as perfect as you can make it while you're working and then coming home and things aren't perfect. Uh, you know, things are operate a lot slower. <laughs> it's, it's a tough transition, especially, um, with my job because I don't necessarily have a fixed schedule. Um, you probably for the most part, know your schedule a month in advance. Hey, I'm going to probably be working these four days or these three days. I'm going to be off these days and go back to work. Yeah. I pretty much know what I'm going to be doing uh, a week in advance, typically, but I may be gone five days. I may be gone two weeks. I, I just don't know. Yeah. And so um, that's also pretty hard because you can't plan on anything. Uh, it's, it's very hard to plan and schedule things. And I do a lot of planning just around what my work schedule is and, right. um, on what they're doing. Yeah. And so far, I mean, you've been able to juggle it all. Are there any, I would say, tips or insights that you can give a new aviator coming up with a family and trying to get into this industry? What some advice that you can give them? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, if you know what you want to do, uh, the airline route or the corporate route, both offer great avenues for a career and job. Um, the airline route is very laid out for you. If you go to this airline, you will get an interview or you will flow through or you will end up someday at this airline. 
which is where most people want to end up. The corporate route is not like that. Um, so if you're going that route, I would suggest uh, trying to find a flight department um, that has multiple aircraft, multiple pilots, um, that's larger, uh, seems to be better in my book. I prefer the small flight departments because it's intimate. You get to work one-on-one -on -one with the CEO and you get a lot of access um, and there's not a lot of, uh, there's no managers to go through. But I think as far as a career goes, um, I'm lacking a lot of that. And I, I, I kind of pine for all that, a crew environment, um, having uh, some systems in place that, that are, are there to protect the, the pilots to protect the the workers. Um, yeah, it, it's a balancing act, and uh, there's no right or wrong. It's just I think a larger flight department that um, you can grow with and slide into a an aircraft at the end of uh, 20 years that you can retire on is probably the way to go. Yeah, oh, that's great advice. Yeah. Thank you. So so far, what's been your favorite airplane to fly? I think the extra 300, the aerobatic airplane. Yeah, pretty fun. I imagine. Do you were you yeah. able to uh, do any acrobatics in it? Were you, are you endorsed? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I'm not an aerobatic pilot, but I've been up a number of times in it. Um, been instructed in it uh, by my friend Spike, uh, another corporate pilot, and uh, he was kind of working on aerobatics and uh, you know loops and rolls and lamshavax and uh, there's a lot going on there. Yeah. It's pretty fun. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> Yeah, if I have some extra money to spend, that's what I'd spend it on going uh, practicing aerobatics. I think it would be fun to compete. Yeah. Can you recall your worst situation so far in your flying career in terms of emergency or flying or anything? And how did you handle it? I can. Uh, there was a few emergencies uh, at Sandpiper. Um, nothing too pertinent or, you know, uh, that couldn't be handled safely. But, uh, I think the biggest emergency I had was a um, a runaway rudder trim oh. on 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 the Pilatus PC12, and it happened twice. And uh, as you know, that's a big that's a big deal to to try to overcome while you're flying single pilot, if you can imagine that, um, with a you know a flight control issue like that. Uh, that that was pretty scary and pretty tough. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, yeah. And how did you, how did that outcome, obviously it was a good outcome, but how did you handle that? Yeah, it was about, uh, I returned to where I was or took off from. And, uh, you know, I think I was about 50 miles from the airport and I turned around 180 degrees and, uh, went back and landed. And, you know, a lot of that training from Sandpiper kicked in, um, stuff that I think, uh, you know, I hear other stories of corporate guys that don't have that kind of training. And it's like, it's just, it's second nature from that sandpiper training. Yeah. The, yeah. the difference of being a deer in headlights versus, uh, all right, stop. This is what's happening. What's next? Memory items, you know, up, up, up. And there is no, there is no idle time when you've been trained to avoid that deer in headlights scenario. But you have to be trained it, if you're not trained. And sometimes even if you're trained, you, you just don't know how you're going to react. No, and, and it's not like you know, there's always something better that you could have done different, but you're trained in that 121 environment. It's really easy to declare an emergency and get all the assistance you can. And that's available to you to assist you with 
making the outcome come safe, uh, be safe. And, uh, that's what I did, you know? And I think, uh, a lot of guys, not a lot of guys, but, uh, you know, other operators, maybe they wouldn't declare an emergency or maybe they wouldn't ask for the crash fire and rescue to be out there, or maybe they wouldn't think ahead that far down the road, you know? And it's like that, that stuff is just second nature. And it's because it's ingrained in you yeah. in that 121 environment, that airline environment. Yeah. That was a lot of the simulator prep training was, okay, when you're in the sim, there's what you're doing, there's what you're doing next and what you're doing after that. You should be focused on what you're doing. You should be thinking about what's next. And in the back of your mind, you should already know what to expect to what's going to happen after that. So you're always where you're at and two steps ahead. And if you're not, that means you're overwhelmed and you really need to kind of study more or, or get into the flow or the training environment uh, more prepared. And, and you're right. That comes from that very structured environment that you can get from a 121 operator, an airline environment. Um, so yeah, I can, I can see how that could definitely help an aviator, no matter where they're flying or who they're flying for, to help them out. And, and that, that, that structure that you speak of, it, it can also hinder, <laughs> as we know, it can hinder operations too in, in certain situations. So on the corporate side, you know, you kind of take, I take the best things of that and I pick that uh, airline and those tips and those things I learned at the airline. And I take those to the corporate side and then I add a lot of common sense and um, try to make the, the operation work smooth and safe uh, um, based off of those two kind of meshing together because, you know, our hands are tied a lot of the time when you're, you know, flying for the airline, right? Like can't go. The book says I can't go. I can't go. The airplane's grounded. Right. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe, uh, Roger, uh, Captain Roger, one of the co-hosts here, he's, he's mentioned that many times. It's like, okay, at the airline, you, you, you follow the structure in the book, the, the chart, the table, the, the, the tree, you know, and you'd follow it and you'd find out if you're legal or not to go. And there's always two or three or four other people involved in your decision-making process. But when you're flying for either part, 20, uh, part 91 or part 135, and you're doing either a, a private or a, a charter operator, as the pilot, you're it. You have to make that decision. You have to go through the structure. Okay, is it, is it, are we good to go? Are we legal? Are we safe? And all that stuff. And you don't have all these other outside departments, you know, looking over your shoulder going, yes, no. Uh, so yeah, definitely a, a much different environment. I, I always have my hats off to anyone flying corporate because that you're, you're outside of that bubble. You know, you have to make those decisions. You have to figure out because in the end of the day, you're the one responsible for it. It's a lot more involved, the corporate flying. I mean, you're involved with everything, right? The bags, the passengers, the maintenance, the, um, you know, the FAA, your, you know, your own pilot certification. It's, it's a lot more hands-on and involved. And that's the aspect I like of it, um, is the corporate side is, is the involvement. Yeah. Yeah. So, and Let's say you can go back in time and uh, just for a moment, whisper in your younger self's ear to give yourself some advice. What would you tell yourself? Stay the course. Don't uh, probably don't jump around so much. Um, you know, everything's going to work out just how it should work out and uh, stay the course. Uh, it'll all be fine. Don't, don't stress out over the little stuff. <laughs> 
because uh, I, I can get worked up over the little things and make my own headwind very, very easily. <laughs> we all can do that, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've been doing that in the uh, in the isolation here the past two months. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. You know, thank God for podcasts and YouTube videos. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you know, all these young aviators out there that are that are still out there in getting their general aviation training underway you know is there any advice that you can give to a young aviator out there that uh, he or she might benefit from um boy that's a big uh big question uh i think find an instructor that you like flying with is the biggest thing because at the end of the day flying supposed to be fun the other thing is uh you don't need to be super smart in math and uh be, be the best be the best mathematician because that's what i thought when i was like a, like looking at doing this i'm like oh i'm not good at math yeah you know my motto the cockpit is no place for math you don't do public math yeah it's funny it should all be figured out by a computer ahead of time yeah well just wait till you go back and listen to episode one and you hear what my mom used to tell me when i was young and i want to be a pilot you're not that good at math yeah i'm not good at math (laughs) well that's great well so what's next for you what's next uh great question um a lot of uncertainty with you know the current environment and how things are going uh there's one possible trip for us, for our flight department, for our company in the next uh, 60 days. So uh, that's not a lot of flying. Um, I've got the airplane over here in Boise for uh, some scheduled maintenance right now. Uh, I'll probably go out, get current or get proficient, I guess, is the be- better way to put it, uh, over the coming weeks and kind of prepare for that trip. But I don't know. Uh, 2021 is going to be interesting to see what happens. Um, I think we'll be all right, but I'm not, you know, I just don't know the answer at this point. Yeah. So when all this quarantine lockdown is over and you get to the next stage in your, of your isolation and we're all able to free to move about the country, um, any plans with you and the, the family and your wife? Well, we uh, just bought a little small travel trailer. And we're going to be, we took it out this week already once. Uh, It's maiden voyage. And uh, we're going to be trying to use that as much as we can the rest of the year. Uh, We're looking forward to it. We've been tent camping for the past, I don't know, five years. And I'm over it. (laughs) Well, you got a nice one. You got one with with a bathroom in it. Which, you know. It's got, it's got a very uh, tiny, tiny bathroom. Yeah. And and now I kind of, well, I didn't want to go and get a a big trailer. I wanted this little canned ham to restore. I know you and I have kind of traded photos back and forth. Uh, I was very excited to hear when you were driving to go pick up your, your new toy uh, and to be able to go out with your family. And funny story there too, is you ended up marrying your first flight instructor's sister. What, what's going on there? uh, Yeah, that's a, that's a great, what's going on there. (laughs) (laughs) So back to that, uh, when I got my private pilot license, uh, the instructor that signed me off, Patrick, uh, I became very good friends with him. We ended up working together on the uh, Astra SPX, the G100. Um, And I ended up uh, meeting his sister, his younger sister, uh, who's from Kentucky. 
And uh, we've got uh, two girls, and we've been married since uh, 2013. Congratulations. And, uh, yeah, thanks. I mean, I knew, I knew her brother, her uncle, and her mother before I even met her. So. And he didn't uh, threaten you to <laughs> break your legs if you broke her heart or anything like that? He did not. I'm surprised. Oh, good man. Good man. He has a lot of trust in you, I see. <laughs> he likes his guns, so I had to be careful. Yeah, you've got to be careful. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Well, congratulations. I, I, I enjoy seeing the, again, the family photos and the adventures that you're taking. And I hope that you have many more adventures here in the near future with your ability to do that, at least. Um, and I wish you all the best in your career, in your aviation career. And I want to thank you again for sitting down with us here on Squawk Ident and having a little chit-chat about your journey in aviation. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Tony. Uh, same for you. I hope we all uh, survive the next six months and come out on the other side all right. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the magic date for the airline pilots out there is October 1st um, because of the bailout and all that stuff. And, you know, October 1st is going to be very telling. And so I'm kind of holding my breath a little bit and hopefully won't have to rely on podcasting for an income because we'd be broke. <laughs> but yeah, thanks again for, for sitting down chatting with me. I, I do appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks. This was fun. Uh, never done anything like this. So uh, definitely a first. And you've got a wonderful studio and thank your neighbor again. That's a fucking awesome. We've got a nice camera set up and everything. It's great. I might go steal a beer out of his fridge on the way yeah, out. At, at least one. <laughs> at least one. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that wraps up episode 41 of Squawk Ident. And I want to just say thank you again to Captain Ryan Rosinski for sitting down with us and giving us a little insight on his journey in aviation. We do hope that you're enjoying Squawk Ident. And the best way you can let us know is by leaving an Apple Podcast review if the Apple Podcast player is the player that you're using. That does help us with the show and improve our standings. Also, we encourage you to visit our website at www.aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo Tango, Oscar November Yankee.com. There you can check out the episode cover art, episode archives, photos from the flight line, the pilot shop with cool Squawk Ident gear, and you can also leave comments and audio feedback as well. For those of you that are on the socials, we do encourage you to check us out. Facebook and Instagram users can search Squawk Ident Podcast. And for those of you that are on Twitter or YouTube, you can check out Aviator Tony and Squawk Ident. I'd like to just say thank you to all of you for taking the time to listen to this grateful aviator keep the dirty side down be safe and take care of each other 